Okay, chapter 15 is shock and resuscitation. Especially about the parts about shock, this is a very important chapter. It's also a chapter that many students kind of struggle with, the concept of shock. A lot of students do struggle with that. Your next exam and every other exam for the rest of this class is going to have questions about shock on it. So it's important that we understand this concept. So shock is a state of inadequate perfusion of the cells, and that can lead to death. Again, we mentioned previously that the body will always try to take steps, if it can, will take steps to try to correct itself, to try to fix itself. And we refer to that as homeostasis. So the body's attempt to restore homeostasis results in many of the signs and symptoms of shock that we see. Primarily, it's the release of epinephrine. So a lot of the signs and symptoms that we get for a patient suffering from shock is because the body is releasing epinephrine to try to fix or correct itself. And resuscitation is the emergency care provided to restore vital body functions. It's CPR. So an overview of shock. Shock is defined as inadequate tissue perfusion. We want to boil that down into one word. Shock equals hypoperfusion, poor perfusion. Inadequate amounts of oxygen, glucose are available, for, available to the cells to meet that metabolic need. So again, something is going on in the body where those cells are no longer getting enough oxygen and glucose. And we talked previously about if the cells aren't getting enough oxygen for normal metabolism, they're going to switch from aerobic metabolism to anaerobic metabolism. When we switch to anaerobic metabolism, again, we're not getting very much uh, energy production, and we're also getting a buildup of more harmful waste products. But at the same time, as we're not getting, not circulating enough oxygen, we're also not able to circulate and pick up, get rid of waste products as well. And again, the shift from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism results in decreased energy production and waste product accumulation. And again, we get, we're getting more dangerous waste products with anaerobic metabolism as well. The cellular sodium potassium pump fails, which is going to lead to cellular death. Cellular death leads to tissue death, which leads to organ death, organ failure, organ system failure, and eventually organism patient death. And for us, the treatment of shock is aimed at restoring perfusion to provide the cells with glucose and oxygen. Again, that's what's going on. Cells aren't getting enough oxygen and glucose for one reason or another. Our treatment, we're, we're going to try to restore, try to get the perfect patient back to normal perfusion. Oftentimes, though, that's a lot easier said than done. For us, prevention of shock is much more desirable than having to treat it. And there are some things that we can do to prevent shock from occurring. Patients having a major active bleed somewhere, stop the bleed. 
So oxygen delivery to the cells. Oxygen delivery to the cells is critical and requires breathing, breathing in an adequate amount of oxygen. Again, they have to be breathing, ventilating effectively on their own. They have to make sure that they're breathing in enough oxygen to meet those cell demands. Diffusion of the oxygen from the alveoli to the pulmonary capillaries. Again, that respiration, we have to make sure that oxygen is able to move across uh, or diffuse across that membrane. Oxygen then, once it's into the blood, has to be transported to the cells by the blood at the cellular level. And then once that oxygen reaches the cells, it then has to diffuse across that membrane and get into the cells for the cells to use. So etiologies of shock. If a patient is suffering from shock, there's one of basically three problems that are going on, or it can be a multitude of more than one. So with shock, Typically, it's one of these three things that are going on. Inadequate volume. The patient doesn't have enough blood or liquid in the blood plasma to be able to circulate the oxygen appropriately. Or we can have inadequate pump function. The heart, something's wrong with the heart, and it's not beating effectively enough to circulate blood and oxygen to the cells of the body. And the third component of this is inadequate vessel tone, where the blood vessels are so dilated that it's dropping our blood pressure to the point where we're not getting enough pressure to circulate the blood throughout the entire body. So again, if a patient's in shock, there's a problem with one of these three items. So inadequate volume. Decreased blood volume decreases preload. Again, preload is the amount of blood that's able to reach that left ventricle that's available to be pumped when the left ventricle beats. Decreased preload causes stroke volume, which is the amount of blood that the left ventricle can pump out with one beat, and cardiac output to fall. So again, if we do something that's reducing preload, cardiac output is going to start dropping. A decrease in cardiac output drop causes a drop in the systolic blood pressure. And that's something that you're going to note in shock. It doesn't matter what is causing the shock. Once it reaches a certain point, the blood pressure is going to begin to fall. All forms of shock will eventually lead to a falling or low blood pressure. Decrease in systolic blood pressure results in inadequate tissue perfusion. Again, vital signs wise, blood pressure is the best vital sign that we have to determine tissue perfusion. So, again, poor perfusion is going to translate to poor blood pressure at a certain point in it. So, inadequate volume again, we're talking about problems with the volume. This may result from loss of either whole blood or just plasma. It doesn't have to be an active bleed that causes the inadequate volume. Bleeding is going to be the most common though. The most common form of shock that we see in patients is going to be from inadequate volume due to an active bleed. But vomiting and diarrhea, severe dehydration, excessive urination, increased capillary leakage as well, all can drop 
blood bar. So again, severe dehydration, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, bad stomach bug can cause a patient to go into shock. So in order to fix inadequate volume, we need to replace the volume. So patient requires an increase in blood volume. For us at the basic level, we can't do anything about poor volume. If red blood cells have been lost, meaning that the patient does have an active bleed somewhere, there's also a decrease in oxygen carrying capacity as well as a decrease in pressure and perfusion. So if the patient's actively bleeding, they're losing red blood cells, they're losing hemoglobin. So they're also losing the ability to carry oxygen as well. So again, they have a decrease in oxygen carrying capacity. And not only that, they also have poor perfusion or blood pressure as well. So that was volume. Again, another problem could be inadequate pump function. So if the heart is not working appropriately, we're not able to circulate that oxygen, that glucose to the cells. So the heart pump or if the heart fails as a pump, regardless of the blood volume, the delivery of oxygen and glucose to the cells are going to decrease. Again, the heart's just not strong enough to pump that blood, that oxygen, the glucose to the rest of the body. Several things can cause this poor pump perfusion. Heart attacks is a very common cause of it. Heart failure, mechanical obstruction, can also mean that there's something blocking that forward movement of blood. Things like a pericardial tamponade, where the sac around the heart is filling up with blood, squeezing that heart, preventing that heart from beating effectively. Or a tension pneumothorax. We've talked a little bit about a pneumothorax where the lung is collapsed because air is getting into that pleural space. A tension pneumothorax first starts out as a pneumothorax, but as that pressure inside that chest cavity continues to build, continues to build, it starts putting pressure on the, starts putting pressure, building up pressure. Now it starts moving everything off to the side. So the injured lung, we're not going to hear lung sounds. The uninjured lung, it's going to start putting pressure on that. We may start hearing diminished lung sounds on the opposite side now. The trachea is getting pushed over so it's no longer in the middle of their neck. Not only that, what's in between your two lungs? Your heart. So that increase in pressure is also compressing that heart, preventing that heart from beating effectively as well. And if we're dealing with poor pump perfusion, giving them IV fluid or giving them more blood is probably not going to solve the problem. And in fact, it's probably going to make the problem worse for us. So again, at the basic level, we don't give IV fluids, but at the advanced paramedic level, that is something that we seriously have to uh, consider and be cautious of, of giving a patient too much IV fluids, because again, it can make things like heart failure a lot worse. And again, that third component is going to be inadequate vessel tone. Blood pressure is a function of cardiac output system uh, systemic vascular resistance or SVR. And SVR, we're basically referring to the size of the blood vessel. So if SVR decreases, that means the blood pressure or the blood vessels are dilating, blood pressure decreases. So if your blood 
again, if your blood vessels all dilate, just like with what's going to occur when we give nitro, what's our blood pressure going to do? It's going to fall. So if all of a sudden something happens in our body, all of our blood vessels dilate extremely large, your blood pressure is going to bottom out. And again, it's going to do it probably pretty quickly. Massive vasodilation can occur from loss of sympathetic nervous system function or chemicals released within the body. What this patient needs is there's either one or two treatment choices typically at the advanced or more particularly the paramedic level. We're either going to give them a medication that's either going to make those blood vessels constrict and get smaller to try to reverse whatever is occurring. Our other option is we're going to give them just a lot of fluid, fluid replacement, because that vessel is larger now. We're going to try to put more volume into it to, again, try to increase and drop pressure. So, again, an example of inadequate vessel tone. In this case right here, we have a normal blood vessel full of blood. So, say this patient gets into or starting to have a uh, septic reaction. They have major allergic, or sorry, infection, and it all of a sudden causes all their blood vessels to dilate. So same amount of volume, but we have a lot larger diameter of blood vessel now. So that's going to cause their pressure to drop down. So again, treatment choices. We're either going to give them a medication to make this go back down to this normal size, which in turn is going to increase that pressure. Or we're going to fill up the rest of this blood vessel, this large blood vessel, with just fluid now. Filling this up with fluid, in turn, is going to increase pressure as well. Again, for us at the basic level, ain't much we're going to be able to do for it. So the treatment, how we treat shock, is going to be oftentimes dependent on what's causing the shock in the first place. Again, if they have an active bleed somewhere, our focus is we're, we're going to stop the bleed. Advanced paramedics are going to get fluid or they're going to replace blood. If it's an anaphylactic reaction, severe life-threatening allergic reaction, we're going to give them epinephrine. Epinephrine is going to reverse all those items as well. We should consider requesting ALS, backup, advanced or paramedic. But again, we should weigh the benefit against any potential delay in reaching the hospital. So we. Oftentimes, the patients are going to benefit from ALS, but we got to weigh that depending what do they really need to survive. Is it better to wait around on scene for an advanced or paramedic, or do we just need to get them to the hospital as quickly as possible? ALS can administer IV fluids to replace volume, again, help drive and increase blood pressure, but IV fluids alone, things like normal saline, lactated ringers, the, the fluids that we give in the pre-hospital setting, does not improve the oxygen carrying capacity of the red blood cells. So the patient, if they have a major active bleed somewhere, they either need a replacement of whole blood or packed red blood cells. And again, typically, traditionally in EMS, we don't give blood. UMC EMS is changing that. And they're about to start administering blood in the, in the streets. But again, that's just something to think of. Yes, we're gonna give them, we're gonna pump fluid to them to try to help increase and drive that blood pressure but that's not correcting the problem that they've lost actual blood, meaning their blood that they have left can't carry as much oxygen. Very important chart. I would recommend printing this chart off, studying it, and knowing it. So categories and type of shock. 
And when we are dealing with categories, we're not going to focus too much on this one down here, the metabolic and respiratory shock. It's these other categories that I really want you to concentrate on and to study. So different categories of shock. One of them is cardiogenic shock. And this is caused by poor pump function. So something is going on. The heart is weakened and is not beating effectively. And again, that can be caused from heart attacks, congestive heart failure, drug overdoses, beta blocker overdoses, et cetera, can all cause cardiogenic shock. The problem is the heart itself. Another type of shock is hypovolemic shock. This is poor volume. So we further break down hypovolemic shock into either hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock which means that the patient has an active bleed somewhere or it's classified as non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock, meaning that they don't have an active bleed, but they're losing plasma. Again, the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dehydration. And we also can have burn shock, which it causes is a very specific type of shock that we see in burn patients, but that's a form of non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. Then we have distributive shock. What distributes the blood to the rest of the cells throughout the body? What's well, your blood vessels, your arteries? So our distributive shock is caused by dilation of blood vessels. And you need to know these categories. You need to know that distributive shock is caused by the dilation of blood vessels. With distributive shock, the different types of shock that comprises or makes up Distributive shock are septic shock. Septic shock is caused by major infections. Neurogenic shock caused by spinal injuries. Anaphylactic shock is caused by anaphylaxis, severe life-threatening allergic reaction. Then we have obstructive shock. Obstructive shock means something is obstructing or blocking the movement of blood. So now we have that tension pneumothorax that we talked about, pericardial tamponade where the sac around the heart is filling up with blood, and pulmonary embolisms or a blood clot in the lung. Those are the three items, the only three items that causes obstructive shock. And there is some people list metabolic and respiratory as a fourth category of shock, and we'll, we'll briefly talk about that as well. Y'all, I want y'all to focus mainly on these and not so much worry about this one down here. So again, the five categories of shock, hypovolemic, poor volume, distributive, inadequate vessel tone, cardiogenic, poor pump function, obstructive, something is obstructing or blocking the forward movement of blood. And then we have that metabolic or respiratory shock. So hypovolemic. Hypovolemic shock is caused by low blood volume. Again, this is broken down into bleeding or non-bleeding hypovolemic. Bleeding is hemorrhagic. So hemorrhage or active bleed is the most common cause of hypovolemic shock. And again, hypovolemic shock is the most common type of shock that we tend to see. 
Hemorrhagic hypovolemia is the loss of whole blood, again, meaning that the patient has an active bleed somewhere, maybe external bleeding, maybe internal bleeding, doesn't matter, but they're losing whole blood. Non-hemorrhagic hypovolemia is a loss of blood plasma. Again, they're not, they don't have an active bleed somewhere, but they're losing the plasma. So again, heat-related emergencies can cause you to lose plasma. Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dehydration. Gins can be by Ill illness or injury. We can have internal bleeding caused by a medical condition, or we can have internal or external bleeding caused by trauma. Also can be caused by burns, and again, severe dehydration. And burns causes a huge fluid shift in your patients and can cause that non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. So again, just an illustration kind of showing the difference. It's losing volume. We're losing volume in one form or another. Hemorrhagic, we have busted blood vessels and we're losing whole blood. Non-hemorrhagic, we're just losing the plasma, the liquid, not the, the blood components. So they're losing just the plasma. Again, dehydration. So hypovolemic, loss of volume, distributive, inadequate or poor vessel tone, vasodilation, caused by vasodilation leading to a relative reduction in intravascular volume. Again, there's just blood vessels are larger, same amount of volume in the body that's going to drop pressure. Most of the time, if we have severe vasodilation, we're also getting uh, increase in capillary permeability, meaning since all those blood vessels are dilating, some of the volume inside those vessels are actually going to start leaking out of the capillaries as well. So with distributive shock, not only do we have vasodilation, but we are losing some amounts of fluid due to the increase in capillary permeability. Loss of SVR results in a drop in the systolic blood pressure, which in turn reduces preload, which reduces cardiac output. So again, blood vessels dilate, blood pressure falls. And it, with this, just think about your circulatory system as any type of pump system. If your pump's no good, you're not getting good pressure. If you're using too big, if you're not don't have enough water to pump, you're not getting good pressure. Again, just think about the the hose or your tubing as your blood vessels. If your pipe is too large for the amount of volume that we have, we're not going to get too much very good pressure as well. If we have smaller uh, hose, that's going to dramatically increase the pressure. Again. Distributive shock, distributive, blood vessels distribute the blood to the rest of the body. So distributive shock is a problem with blood vessels. And again, just like we talked about earlier, this is, by increasing the size, we're dropping the blood pressure. And not only that, we get that increased capillary permeability where plasma is leaking out of the capillaries as well. Cardiogenic is the pump, so poor pump failure. Caused by the inability of the heart to contract effectively. 
This generally occurs with loss of 40% or greater of left ventricular pumping ability, uh, has been lost cumulatively due to damage from the heart attack, congestive heart failure, infections, or abnormal heartbeats, cardiac dysrhythmias. So if the heart's not beating effectively, that's going to reduce the stroke volume, which in turn is going to reduce cardiac output. We reduce cardiac output, blood pressure drops. So heart attack has a cause of cardiogenic shock. Damaged heart muscles re results in reduced force of contractions, reduced stroke volume, and reduced cardiac output. So in this case, this part of the heart is not receiving enough oxygenated blood, so it be starting, it's beginning to die. Well, if that muscle is dead or dying, it's not going to pump or contract as forcefully. So that reduces the strength of that ventricle contracting, which in turn is reducing the amount of blood it's able to pump out, which in turn is going to reduce blood pressure. Obstructive, something is obstructing or blocking. Results from a condition that obstructs the forward blood flow. Three things that cause obstructive shock. Pulmonary embolism, again, which is a blood clot obstructing the lung. Attention pneumothorax and pericardial tamponade. Tension pneumothorax, pericardial tamponade, both prevent adequate filling of the heart and compression of the heart. It's putting pressure on the heart, preventing it from beating effectively. Obstructive shock, what that patient needs treatment-wise, you need to relieve the obstruction. Us at the basic level, ain't jack we can do about it. At the paramedic or advanced level, we can treat a tension pneumothorax, but as for a pulmonary embolism or tamponade, ain't much we can do about it. So getting them to the hospital quickly is going to be a pretty hot focus with suspected obstructive shock. And again, just an illustration of those three causes. Pulmonary embolism, again, there's a blood clot. So blood is unable to circulate to this portion of the lung, so it's not getting oxygenated. Tension pneumothorax, again, lung collapse, air continues to fill up the chest cavity. Pressure builds, pressure builds. Now it's starting to compress the heart, shift that trachea from midline away from the injured site. As it continues to worsen, this lung can start getting pressure placed on it as well. And pericardial tamponade, the sac around the heart is filling with blood. Again, metabolic or respiratory shock. Again, I don't want you to focus too much on this. The other ones are more important. So some sources list this as a fifth category of shock. What's causing the shock is there's the dysfunction and the ability of oxygen to diffuse into the blood. There's a problem with the oxygen being able to be carried by the hemoglobin, offload at the cells, or be used effectively by the cell for metabolism, resulting in hypoxia and hypoxemia. Common causes of this category of shock is inhaled poisonings, things like carbon monoxide poisoning or things like cyanide poisoning. Cyanide poisoning uh, causes a problem with the uh, blood uh, moving the oxygen in the cells. So again, typically poisonings, we typically see those at fires. So again, with those were kind of the overall categories of shock. 
In those different categories, we also have specific types of shock as well. So again, hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock caused from active bleeding. It's a form of hypovolemic shock. Non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock, form of hypovolemic shock from the loss of plasma. Burn shock is a type of non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. Anaphylactic shock is a type of distributive shock. Septic shock is a type of distributive shock. Neurogenic shock is a type of distributive shock. And cardiogenic shock is cardiogenic shock. So hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock, also known as just hemorrhagic shock. Again, hemorrhage, active bleeding. So a loss of whole blood. And again, this can be from a medical condition or a traumatic condition. Injury. We're losing whole blood. This results in decreased perfusion pressures, decreased oxygen carrying capability. So we're losing blood. So we're losing our, our liquid or volume. So our blood pressure is going to start dropping. Not only that is our pressure dropping, but we're also losing red blood cells because the so now that the blood that we do have left is not able to carry oxygen as well as it once was as well. This is treated initially by stopping the bleeding. So that's going to be, and again, that's why we address major bleeding in the primary assessment. As soon as we see major bleeding, we take we can take immediate action to stop the bleeding. Then it's by replacing blood or blood components. Again, especially with hemorrhagic shock, fluids can be helpful, but it's not what's best for the patient. They need blood or things like packed red blood cells. So it may require fluid and or blood transfusions. Non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock, on the other hand, this is loss of fluid without the loss of red blood cells. So again, there's no active bleed somewhere. They're just losing the plasma. Fluid consists of plasma, water, and the electrolytes are what's being lost. And again, anything that causes dehydration, dehydration is a form, or is what causes non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. So vomiting, diarrhea, excessive sweating. All of those can lead to non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. So unlike hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock where they're losing red blood cells and non-hemorrhagic, they're not. So in this case, patient doesn't need a blood transfusion. They don't need packed red blood cells. They can benefit greatly from just normal IV fluids. So administration of IV fluids at the ALS level can be extremely helpful. That's Oftentimes, that's all the patient needs. They've been nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. We're going to give them an, a fluid bolus to replace that missing lost plasma. So advanced paramedics, again, they can treat non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock a lot easier than we can treat hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. Burn shock. Again, it's a specific form of non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock, and it results from burns. So plasma and plasma proteins leak from damaged capillaries. There's also a loss of fluid and plasma on conic pressure leads to edema. 
and this normally takes hours to develop. So again, major massive burns causes major fluid shifts and fluid loss from the vascular space. So again, it can result in non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. With burn shock, this is going to take hours to develop. So if we're running to the house fire to pick up the burn patient, they're not going to be exhibiting signs and symptoms of burn shock yet. It's going to take hours to develop. However, it's such a dramatic shift in fluid that advanced paramedics are going to go ahead and start giving this patient fluid boluses to try to combat that, even though it's hours away from occurring. Anaphylactic. Again, this is a type of distributive shock. The chemical substances released in anaphylactic reactions causes massive, massive systemic vasodilation. When we get vasodilation, we get the increase in capillary permeability, again, causing decrease in cardiac output, a drop in blood pressure. Anaphylactic react, uh, shock, though, for us, especially at the basic level, is probably the easiest one for us to treat. Very scary, very life-threatening, but we give the patient epinephrine, and it's going to reverse everything. We're going to get vaso, vasoconstriction. We're going to get bronchodilation. We're going to stop the cap, uh, capillary permeability. Septic shock, again, is another type of distributive shock caused by severe infections. And again, it doesn't matter if it's viral, bacteria, any type of infection has the potential of causing septic shock. Sepsis or sepsis syndrome is the body's exaggerated inflammatory response to an infection, again, fungal, viral, bacterial, that overwhelms the body's normal defenses and regulatory systems, causing a disruption in cell and organ function. So this bacteria or this uh, uh, fungus, typically not fungus, but viral or bacteria that's floating around in the bodies, it causes the body to attack it, to fight it. They over-exaggerate, and it causes blood vessels to dilate. Bacteria and toxins in the blood lead to vasodilation, increased capillary permeability. Septic shock is going to be defined as severe sepsis with the systolic blood pressure below 90 millimeters of mercury. So the patient is hypotensive, low blood pressure. Sepsis is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. They see 571,000 cases in the, each, in the year ER each year, and most cases of sepsis are over 65. So being able to recognize sepsis is going to be pretty important for us as well. So assessment findings, things that we tend to see in septic shock. We're going to see tachycardia. We typically see that in most forms of shock, with one exception. So high heart rate, tachypnea, fast breathing. What's going to separate septic shock from the other forms of shock is septic shock, they're fighting infection, they're oftentimes going to present with a fever as well. Basic treatment is going to be focused on airway ventilations and oxygenation. All we're going to be able to really do at the basic level is supportive measures. And if your protocols allow us to, we may be able to treat the patient with an antipyretic medication. Antipyretic medication is just anti-fever medication. 
Normally, we don't treat fevers, though, unless the fever is above 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. That's what we consider a fever, 100.4 or above. Two most common antipyretic medications that can be that are carried on ambulances, or same stuff that's in your home, ibuprofen, acetaminophen. With septic shock, patients can benefit from ALS treatment. Our treatment at the advanced paramedic level is we're going to give them fluid boluses. Blood vessels are dilated. We're going to try to give them fluid to fill up that additional space. In turn, it's going to increase and drive blood pressure. There are different screening tools that can be used by EMS agencies to help them screen for sepsis. If we do run on a patient that we suspect sepsis on, we do need to notify the hospital early. They tend to have their own specific protocols if they're dealing with a potential septic patient. Just know what type of screening tool is in your protocols. Neurogenic shock may also be referred to as vasogenic shock. Again, this is also a form of distributive shock, meaning the problems in the blood vessels, or what's causing the shock anyways in the blood vessels, dilating. Well, what causes the, uh, the blood vessels to dilate in neurogenic shock is a spinal cord injury. It causes the loss of sympathetic nerve fiber function below the injured site that's responsible for maintaining blood vessel tone. So body basically is unable to release epinephrine and norepinephrine and be able to use it appropriately. Results causes major blood dilate, vasodilation due to the loss of systemic vascular resistance, dropping blood pressure. So neurogenic shock is a form of shock or type of shock that's going to present very uniquely from other forms of shock. Since the body is unable to release epinephrine as well as other forms of shock to the body, to the body below the injury site, the signs and symptoms can be different. The skin, typically for most forms of shock, the skin is going to be diaphoretic. They're going to be sweating. However, with Neurogenic shock, the skin can be warm and dry below the injured site, but still be diaphoretic above the injured site. All other forms of shock produce tachycardia, high heart rates, not the case in neurogenic shock. What's causing the tachycardia and the other forms of shock is the release of epinephrine. Well, we're not getting the release of epinephrine because we cut that uh, the signal, the brain can no longer signal the body to release that epinephrine because of the spinal cord injury. So epinephrine is not getting released. So we're not getting the fast heart rate. We're going to get a slower than normal heart rate. And that's going to cause the blood pressure to drop. Heart rate can't pick up to try to overcome the falling blood pressure due to the vasodilation. Means blood pressure is going to fall and they can go downhill very quickly energetic shock because it's the body is losing its compensatory mechanisms. It can't compensate for what's going on. Cardiogenic shock. Failure of the pump. Again, causes of cardiogenic shock include heart attacks, CHF, 
abnormal, abnormal cardiac rhythms, dysrhythmias, overdose of certain drugs, mainly like blood pressure medications, beta blockers, uh, calcium channel blockers can all produce cardiogenic shock as well. And these patients can also benefit from ALS intervention. We can put them on a heart monitor, determine what the hell is going on, and give them medications to try to fix their heart rhythm as well. And again, let's put this slide up here one more time. I would recommend studying this because you need to know what classification or category of shock is septic shock in. You need to know that distributive shock is caused by vasodilation. You need to know that hypovolemic shock is caused by the loss of volume. Obstructive shock is caused by something blocking the forward movement of blood. You need to know what component or three conditions cause obstructive shock, et cetera. Okay, this is probably the best place to go ahead and stop for today. I told you we'd still get out of here early, so.